This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel, and my guest today is an extraordinary storyteller, a hilarious stand-up comic, and an always-working actor. She is uh, the winner of NPR Snap Judgment Comedic Performance of the Year and can be seen on Netflix, Apple TV, Showtime, HBO, and Disney+. Plus. From The Mandalorian to Curb Your Enthusiasm, she is making her mark on the television industry. Joining me now is colorful comic yarn spinner, and gift of gabber, Jen Kober. Wow, that might be the greatest introduction I've ever gotten. <laughs> really, I like—I particularly like the poem at the end. It's you know? <laughs> very well worded. It's thought out. It's it's accurate and correct. I love it. It is you. Yes. You are buoyant. There is a great charisma and joy that comes out of you when I watch you on stage. Oh, you're very sweet. I love what I do. I don't have any other skills. <laughs> and I'm so glad that I don't sit behind a desk and have to deal with, we deal with people, but not in the same way. And so I really do. I love what I do. I love that I don't have to necessarily rely on other people to do it. And I get to do it my way completely. When did you discover that you could do it and sustain living on it? I'm going to say the thing that I don't think I'm supposed to say, but I never had another job. <laughs> I always just did this. And I'm very lucky that, you know, my daddy's a heart surgeon. I did okay. If I was like, Ooh, I'm a little short on rent. I was very lucky that I had parents that would be like, here you go. And, and they believed in me. They knew that I was good at what I was doing. I started doing competitive speaking, like speech, like you do in high school when I was in high school and I was a national champion five times. Wow. So they got that this wasn't just yeah. like something I kind of wanted to do. This was like something I was really good at that I was really passionate about that was really important to me. And so I was lucky that they sent me to an acting conservatory to go to college and they sent me to improv classes and stand up classes. And they were very, very, very supportive of me, both emotionally and financially, which I certainly needed. And I've had a little side hustle jobs here, right? Like I substitute taught for a little minute yeah. and realized very quickly that wasn't for me. <laughs> Good God. I, I like immediately went home and wrote a thank you letter to every teacher that ever put up with me in a classroom. Like that was yeah. the most awful week of my life. Now, what would be interesting to me is if we could find any of those students from that week. Oh, I still talk to a lot of them. It was a very small town. <laughs> People will come up to me when I do shows in my hometown and be like, one time you were my typing teacher. Like, and I was like, mm, I'm so sorry for that. <laughs> oh no, you were so funny. I remember you saying, you said a bad word. I was like, I'm sure I did. I, I'm so sorry. However, I scarred you, but like, Ooh, and everybody was like, you'd be so good at it. You're so good with kids. Cause I am, cause children love me. They are drawn to me. They recognize me as one of their own. I have a very childlike <laughs> spirit. It's all there, except that I don't want anything to do with them. Right. And they're really <laughs> awful creatures. For your parents, for anybody listening, I think it's very lovely that you had the financial and foundational support to do what you're good at because it happens so much faster for people when they have a support system. And yes. whether that's a spouse, when somebody says, hey, I'm going to be your cheerleader or I'm going to be your champion or I'm going to introduce your storytelling to someone else, 
that is something that anybody I've talked to that's creative, it's not always their parents and it's not always their brothers and sisters. It's very rarely. Their right. Parents. It's often a coach or somebody external that was that saw the potential that said, hey, you could be good at art. Hey, do you know that? That's something you should pursue more of. And that begins to give us self-confidence. And I think you are such a good storyteller. And I know that it's led to award-winning situations, but a, a show like Snap Judgment, which NPR puts on, it's not a competition, but it is. I mean, it does lead to the fact that people listen to storytellers to hear better and better stories. And the better we get at it, the more self-competitive we need to get. The next year you start to tell a story, you face a blank page. You face a new situation where our confidence is always in check for the next thing we do. You don't get a free pass on the next routine you write. But you know what? Those endings can be tricky if they don't come first, if they don't present themselves in the real world. I literally just got called by Snap Judgment. They're doing a show called Spooked, which is scarier stories. And they're doing some live shows. And Mark Ristich, the producer, and Glenn Washington called me. Uh, I get a FaceTime call from from the two of them. And I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, listen, we're doing live shows and we, we don't want to do them without you. Nah. And I'm like, dude, I don't, I don't have a scary story. What are you talking? I don't do scary. I do not do scary. I can scare the hell out of myself just turning on the news. I don't need to watch anything scary. I don't need to think about anything scary. No, 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 no. And so they were like, well, then that's your story. Like, we're not doing this without you. And I was like, I love this. So now I have to do it. And so uh -huh. I really did sit down at a blank page and be like, ah, how do I tell a scary story without being scary? Yeah. Now I can tell you, I've had that experience. I don't, first of all, I'm not a horror movie watcher. I, that kind of scary doesn't interest me. But I was telling a story at a creative retreat the other day that was a true story about leaving my 11-year-old in a hotel room by himself. And he had volunteered and it went awry. And on stage when I came off, 30 minutes I was on stage, I came off and there were eight phone calls from the hotel that what happened to me as a parent in that is more horrifying than any movie I've ever seen. And yeah. in reflection, we can laugh about it. He can laugh about it. But it couldn't be a better conditions for storytelling. <laughs> this is not what you want. At the moment of crisis, you would like it to be over as fast as possible. But in good storytelling, it's the observer's ability to reconstruct the story. Oh, absolutely. You're so good at this. So maybe share with me, where do you go? Do you go to stacking up instances and things? Or do you look for that ending and, and back into it so that you know you can stick the dismount? Yeah, I start with where I want it to end, for sure. I start at the end and, and then try to see what really gets me there. And what I have to do is really talk out like the full real story. Where I think the beginning is, there's even stuff before that. Like, let me tell you, like the reason I even had that thought, the beginning thought is because two days before this had happened, which made me think this. So that led me to this. So that's where I'm starting from. I've already got all this. So I feel like that is sort of what I have to do so that I make sure that all of the pieces get in so that you're sort of breadcrumbing them to where it ends up. Mm -hmm. And 
much like a Beatles wrote songs. I'm taking little pieces from a lot of things. I know I have this funny story about when I was a kid, we used to go to the roller rink and do that like light as a feather, stiff as a board thing, right? Where we would <laughs> right. Kind of lift other girls up with just our two fingers. Right. She would have to like lay stiff on the ground and we would chant this like, light as a feather, stiff as a board, light as a feather, <laughs> stiff as a board. And she would try to stiffen up and we would try to lift her with just two fit, like three other little girls yes. trying to lift. Uh, and it never worked, but we were we were convinced that we were like witches and we could make this happen. Like that was the closest to anything scary ever happening to me ever. And and that same night we had a slumber party and we watched Carrie. Oh, wow. The, the girl who we were spending the night with had an older sister and the older sister was having people spend the night too. So we were like hanging out with the older girls for the movie time. And they had rented Carrie. And I was like, like, I just looked at the cover and I was like, I got to go to sleep. I got to fall asleep before this movie starts. And I'm very good at falling asleep. I can fall asleep anywhere at any time in any position. My eyes don't even need to be closed. So I'm thinking this is perfect. I'm just going to knock <laughs> off. They wouldn't let me knock off. I, in my head, thought that Carrie was about like a killer, like some slasher. Right. right? I didn't realize this was just a girl who got her period and they doused her in blood. Like, and I was also at the same time reading, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret, which is about a young girl who gets her period for right. the first. So there was just like a lot of, a lot of blood imagery coming at me at this time, sort of related to just me being a girl. Like there was just all this blood I was going to have to deal with just by being female. And once that part of the story started to, develop i was like oh now i know where i can take this where it can be funny it doesn't matter if the story in and of itself is scary it matters if i tell it as if i am flipping terrified right there's a fear factor in just performing stand-up now you don't know what's gonna get said to you what's gonna occur there's that joke of we're talking to the audience but are, do we really want their response you know it's like anybody got a, a bird that you know like you want somebody <laughs> kind of respond, but you don't want a conversation to ensue. So that sort of rapport that you have with the audience, that conversation, that back and forth is even scarier now because of what they could come back with and what sort of bullying behavior you could get from something you say. And I think what I am noticing now in, in stand-up comedy, especially, but in, in many art forms is that it's almost, you're selling more tickets by being a bully or antagonistic or controversial or saying something awful about the trans community or the black mm -hmm. community or the gay community or whatever that is. Like, like there's something about provocativeness being necessary to sell tickets and that selling tickets is driving the art form. I see some of the guys that sell tickets and I yeah. find some of them very funny and others I'm like, Hmm, that's a lot of sizzle and not a lot of steak. Yeah. And it's because they've got millions of followers on TikTok. And I don't begrudge that to anyone, but I do notice that the things that they are posting online or the things that they are putting out are is not bits of their material. It's them fucking with people. Right. Yeah. No, it's a kind of a clickbait approach of saying, yeah. hey, come to this rally and I'll I'll stir the pot up. Right. And it's not a dumb move, but it's that move of, if you don't know what I'm going to say next, you're going to be there to see what I say next. 
right? That sort of, I'm a loose cannon and right. anything could come out of my mouth. And so, and I'm not afraid to say black things to black people. And I'm not afraid to say Chinese things to Chinese people. I'm right. not afraid to, to go after gay people. Like he, there's no taboo, which I also love. I mean, I'm a comedian. I don't want yeah. there to be censorship. I don't want anybody to be afraid to say anything, but it feels like a lot of times that that's, the driving force behind it. Well, I think the difference is that it comes from a mean place because I, as a kid would watch Don Rickles come on the tonight show. He would go every direction and yet he had heart and he would be next to a person and they would be laughing as much as anybody. So you kind of knew that he had an endorsement to continue. I don't think he was a mean spirited person. And I think that he knew how to put us a little bit on edge, but you wouldn't say that to a bald man or, or anybody of any ethnicity, but he seemed to be able to do it in a way that was inclusive. As, yeah. as weird as that sounds. No, I get it. I do it too. When I'm on stage, if I notice that someone is the only thing in the room, I'm going to call that out. I'm going to make a comment. It's going to be funny. It's going to be lighthearted. That person's not going to like cry and leave the room. But certainly I'm going to point that out. I totally get that. But that's the thing is that's what's missing is the heart. I think I see a lot of these and I say men because it's it's usually men that I see doing it. But fellas that I've seen do it sort of do it with like a little grin. Like I know I'm a cute guy and I can get away with saying this or I know I'm I'm popular and so I can get away with saying this. It, what it seems is obvious instead of clever. Mm -hmm. I think what Don Rickles would do at the time because we hadn't seen it, th those things really would turn us on our head. When he'd see a black guy and be like, oh, he would order something from the black guy who's just there in the audience. Like, that's funny. We had never seen anyone do that. And and the black guy was laughing, right? right. Like it was this sort of shared joke. We were all in on it. He came off as the stupid old white guy because clearly this is a patron in a paid seat in a suit looking at him and so it's not like an oblivious racist who says oh, it no, no, curbside no. but the thing is his acting ability was <laughs> good enough to pull off what you would see curbside at an airport i mean i think there's some elegance in that as much as that sounds strange but i agree with you i think that to play dumb you've got to be very smart to play that sort of archie bunkerishness to it is very subtle and is what makes it work. It's yeah. why you couldn't create an Archie Bunker character today. And that's ridiculous because now is when we flip and need it. But right. the truth is, is thank God those things still exist and you can go watch it and be like, oh my God, this is so funny. And it's so funny because we can't say it today because no. we can't. I feel like the reason it doesn't get made today is almost because there are people like that. Yeah, that's the thing. And they look at a person like that and they're, they become their hero. Yeah. So the irony is Norman Lear's creation of that. And I think what made that such important entertainment at the time and still today is the parts that were played by the people around him yeah. shows you the tension. You wonder and worry about Edith. How can you stay married and in a household and at a dinner table with this person? And yet it is happening all over the world. How right. can you be the son or son-in-law of that person and even survive a meal? Because, I mean, now more than ever, it's a house of divide. 
everybody take a side on anything. And they weren't shying away from those conversations. They were having those conversations at dinner. They were having the, the government is doing this and black people are doing this. Those conversations were getting had at that time yeah. by these unlikely people. And he lived with the Jeffersons next door who would come into his house and a dialogue while <laughs> great, full of conflict. We were the witness of how should we behave at this moment? Oh, good God. I don't want to be Archie. I don't ever want to be Archie. I think that there's so much programming and so much radio and so much podcasting where people mistake what our uh, First Amendment right to say what we want. Well, you're not right to to libel somebody. You're not, it's not okay to just randomly lie and name call and insult and bully and, and have somebody try to correct the facts later. I don't think that's responsible speaking at all. I, I mean, you, I like as a comedian that people can tell stories and they can share facts and they can do anything they want. I don't want to restrict that, but I just think that the lying and the name calling and the bullying has turned okay. into a like full contact sport. I would liken it to the Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding situation, <laughs> which is yeah. just please go skate each other off and be true competitors. Let's right. not try to throw the edge in by taking out a person's knee. A couple of comedians that have really hit, like hit big million dollar tour deals off of basically clips they've been posting. And there's a lot of clatter and clamor in the stand-up community of, is it deserved? And have they put in the time? Blah, 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 blah. And the truth is, is that anything in this business is is hit or miss. You don't know who, what's going to, what people are going to respond to and what they're not. Would I like to make millions of dollars on a tour? Of course. But that's not why I got into this. I didn't get into this thinking I'm going to go on some million dollar tour. I got into this because this is what is in me to do. Because this is what I feel compelled and excited and passionate to do. And I'm lucky to have had so many breaks at it. I'm lucky to have been mentored by some very incredibly talented people. I'm luck lucky to have been granted so much stage time. I mean, you know, as well as anybody, this is a muscle. And if you don't have the chance to work it out more than seven minutes at a time, you're not going to get very good at it. I was very lucky that, that I was given a lot of stage time early on, you know, I told, I told them I was a headliner long before I had 45 minutes of material <laughs> because I really couldn't afford to make feature money. I was like, shit, if I'm going to be living in my car and driving place to place, I got to be the headliner. I can't be making that shitty feature money. I got to yeah, be making yeah. headliner money. It's funny what necessity comes of it, because if you're an opener or you're an MC, you are as fast as you can become a feature. You're like, I'll write 15 minutes tonight if I have to. I got to get to that next step. And the minute yeah. you're featuring, the only thing that's a cushion there is that they're warmed up and you don't have to close over the margarita machine. Yeah. The feature thing is a glorious place to showcase uh, generally what your voice is. But the second you realize the game is doing the heavy lift at the end and getting the bigger paycheck, you'll write another 30 minutes if you have to. Yeah. I never featured. I really just like the first booker who was ready to book me was like, can you headline? You can do 45. I go, I can do 90. And she's like, done. You're booked. Oh. <laughs> My first road gig was in Medford, Oregon at a, a, a discotheque. And the big selling point of this gig was they had a, a dinner buffet and you could, you could get a dinner before your show. They would feed you. Okay. So I was going to get 200 bucks and a spaghetti dinner. 
This was a very big selling point. I did. I got the spaghetti dinner and and I did my show. And I was also trained in improv. So even though I didn't have 45 minutes, I, I was doing crowd work. I would find somebody and hone in on them, some little skinny bitch in the audience. I'd try to find the prettiest girl in the room and nail her and just go at her for 40 minutes. And it worked. People loved me. And so the booker kept getting all these rave reviews about my show. And then boom, 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 boom. And next thing I knew, I was giving up my apartment because I was I was never there. I was on the road right. all the time. And I just right. lived out of my car on the road with my wife at the time. And, and that was it. We were on the road full time. And the road is interesting because it's like your Venice Beach workout. Because you're working out in front of people yes. all the time. The fact that you had a toolkit that included improv and storytelling, I guarantee that in all of that, you saved some killer story and you worked yourself as far as you could get for 45 minutes and you knew how to close. Yeah. I had a story about taking mushrooms unknowingly and, and ending up at a Walmart. And that was my, <laughs> that was my closer. All I had to do was tell some fat jokes in the beginning, right? Like I'm a big girl. Oh, you're a little skinny bitch. I'd fuck with her for a little <laughs> bit. And then I would get into some, some crowd work and then hit this Walmart story. And I was done. I had, uh, a CD of me, you know, rambling one night that we recorded. I sold it for $5 at right. the end of the show. I'd make like another hundred bucks, which was That's at a the time. I mean, deal. that was, fuck, I could eat on that for a week. Right. I would live off the CD money every night, the hundred bucks I was making the CDs. And I was banking this $200 that I was making every night so that when I did get off the road, I was able to get a really nice apartment and get a place and do all the things. But I had my own laptop. I was like burning my own CDs oh, wow. on the way to the place. I was cutting out, you know, I'd get the, the little CD covers <laughs> printed at, at Staples and be cutting them out and putting them in the little jewel cases before the show. And I was my own little factory. And right. I, I did that for, and I did that for probably four years straight without having an address. Not having an address and being on the road, which is great for honing your timing and really getting strong at what you do. It's not ideal for acting and auditioning and being available. They like when you have an address and a phone number near where they're going to shoot these things. I gather from your conservatory that you had acting chops because the character role acting that you do is super cool. Like you get to play some very interesting people, which seem to me to come out of who you are, that they look and they go, this would be an interesting kind of person to play this character. They're not describing you when they describe the sheriff of the town. <laughs> it's so funny because like every time I go into a callback, it's like me, a big black girl, a Chinese guy, a redhead. They've just <laughs> right. found these five characters that could do this but there's no character description of it. So you're very right in that. And what I try to do is just make a big choice, yeah. right? Like what would I want to do? What would I think would be the funniest for this kind of character? And then that's what I do. And sometimes they respond to it and sometimes they don't. And sometimes I see what they did respond to, right? Like you watch it later and you're like, <laughs> this is who you cast? I was amazing. This is what you, you know, like I, I literally just watched something that I, had gone to producers on. And when I saw who they cast, I was like, oh, that bitch again. <laughs> I remember when I lived in LA and I was a young comic, if I took an actress to a movie, I couldn't 
watch the movie because all she'd say, I was up for this. And I think, and they didn't think she didn't even say the line. I was like, we're watching a movie here. And like, it's impossible in LA. But it's so true. It's I'm like that. And like, I'll be like, oh, I see. My mother's like, I don't understand why you don't want to watch the third season of Only Murders in the Building. I'm like, well, I was up. <laughs> I was up for the part. Got cast. Got COVID. Couldn't do it. Like, <laughs> I'm still pissed about it. And she's like, but you got the part. But I'm not playing it. It's a whole thing. And that is very much how you are with parts. And so... I watched something I didn't get that Time Daily got. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, of course I wasn't going to get that. They gave it to Time Daily. That's not fair. If I had known Time Daily was in the running, I'd have sat my ass at home. What the hell? Now, was the description of the character Time Daily type? No, it was the reboot of Murphy Brown, oh. the, that character of Phil who ran the bar. So the the premise was Phil has died and his sister or like a daughter, some, some relative of his. So you needed to be, look like you could be related to Phil. So Tyne Daly played it as his sister or wife. I don't even remember. And I played it as like his kid. So I played it much more like him and she played it different. I have a picture from pre-pandemic of me in a room with Cameron Mannheim. It was basically like every overweight actress in Hollywood. It's like all the big girls. If you even want to call them big girls. Like it was all the non-skinny bitch actresses. It was all the <laughs> others. The ones who are going to play the best friend. We're not going to be the lead. We're going to be the best friend. It was all of us in one room. And I was like, I know this might be weird, but I love all y'all. Oh, funny. Picture together. And we all took a picture. I, I was like, I'll never be in the room with you all again. Cause clearly we're all, there was only one part for us and, and we're all up. We're never going to get to, I'm going to write a, a show called big girls and we're all going to get to fucking be in it. And let's do this. In all of these, have you had a favorite character role? Did one stand out as I just had the best time with this material or this particular show or cast? I mean, I really loved Curb Your Enthusiasm and Righteous Gemstones because there was no script per se. But there was a lot of allowance for, he's like, if you've got something funny to say, say it. If you've got an idea, let's do it. You know, it was very much like that. And I love that. I loved working on The Mandalorian as well, but that was the exact opposite. <laughs> the, the script supervisor was like, I need you to get every single word right. And all of these words are not in a language you might know because they're in this language of Star Wars. So here's a video on exactly how to say the words and here's exactly. Oh. So that was very precise, but I loved that too. But when I watch it, back and I'm like, how the fuck did I remember all those words like that? <laughs> I mean, we did that scene a but how I was looking into a screen. So I was looking at my own reflection with little things, trying oh, to remember brutal. words and say things that weren't there. There was so much going on. And like, I'm starved. I'm trying not to eat because I can't get anything on the costume. So like, I'm lightheaded. I, all I want is some juice. Like I'm about to have a Steel Magnolia's <laughs> Shelby moment. And I'm trying to remember like all these words from Star Wars and shit. And I watch it back and I'm like, look at me go. Like, that's amazing to me. And then I watch me do something like Righteous Gemstones or Curb Your Enthusiasm, where I know I was just going off the cuff and doing what I wanted to do. And that cracks me up too. So in Curb, you got to clobber uh, Larry David. I did that in the audition and they were like, that was so 
funny. And I was like, oh, good. Well, what's great about it, though, is that in an after effect, it is a, a memorable story, a memorable scene with somebody who many people yeah. would like to clobber. I worked with Larry uh, over at Seinfeld. And before Curb existed and everybody got that kind of cockeyed showdown of him, that's who Larry is. Larry is a guy that likes to be contrary and he likes to stir the pot up. And when I went in for that audition, you know, all I knew was you are living in a battered woman's shelter and you just don't look like a woman who would get battered. Okay. I have a big tattoo here across my chest. And so I wore something where you could see my tattoos. I was trying to look as menacing as I could. And I walked in and the first actress I see is, I'm not going to remember her last name, but her first name is Dot. She was the other very big butch manly woman on Glee that was not Jane Lynch. Okay. This woman looks like a linebacker. I mean, very talented, a huge heart of gold, one of the softest people you'll ever meet, but she looks like she could play for the bears. Like she, and I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm never going to get this. She, look how, this is a visual joke. The joke is, oh, you're in a battered woman's shelter and you look like a linebacker. She's going to get this. I better make a real big choice when I get in that room. And when I got in that room, I just punched him. And when I punched him, just started laughing so hard and i was like oh zz top is laughing right on like i was so and then jeff garland was laughing and and because larry kept trying to talk through the the punch and then literally <laughs> while i'm leaving the room i'm like i don't think i'm gonna get this and i'm never gonna be in a room with jeff garland again so i go up to jeff garland and i'm like listen when i was in college i was an usher at your one-man show called i want someone to eat cheese with at the remains theater i thought you were fucking brilliant then i think you're fucking brilliant now and if we never see each other again i just want you to know like you made me want to do this and he was like oh my god thank mm. you and then i got the part and got to like work with him and of course lost my mind but I was for sure. I was like, there's no way they're going to cast me because, and then when we, when I got cast, when I got to the show, I'm saying this to Larry, I was like, I really didn't think you were going to cast me. I really, that other woman was so big. He goes, you had that tattoo. That was the scariest looking thing I've ever seen. And I was like, oh my God, will you call my mom? Because when I tell my mom that this tattoo got me a job on a show with the biggest Jew in Hollywood, my mother was like, what kind of a Jew? Cause you know, I'm Jewish. What kind of a Jew has, is going to show their tattoo off to Larry David? This isn't going to help you, Jennifer. What do you think you're doing? And I'm like, I'm telling you, I have to look mean. It's what I have to do, whatever. And so I was like, I wanted him so badly to just call my mother and tell her that I, he cast me because of this tattoo. I think that's fantastic. It really is. And you know what? You go back to the things that I want the listener to hear if they're interested in this. You made a big choice and you did the unexpected that choice to make that punch is the difference of getting the job or not getting the job and making them laugh. You brought your personality and your intuition to the moment. And yes, there are times that'll stink the pot up for all of us, but it more than ever is the thing that they go, that was unexpected. That's somebody I can work with. That person has range. I had a show called American Pie, and I was trying to cast the foils against, I, I had a brother, and we had a garden shop, and we had an episode where we were going to have the competing garden giant brothers. What are these brothers going to be like? We went to audition a series of people for a main character, which was kind of our Kramer, kind of an offbeat character, and we wanted to have fun with this person. In the course of reading that, we read two different guys from the Groundlings, a guy named Chris Darga, 
who's a really funny guy. He shows up in all kinds of commercials and things, but he has kind of a funny eye. You look at him and you go, something's not right about this guy. <laughs> and it's unfortunate because he's a tremendously nice guy and he's, he's blessed with this like weird stink eye, right? 10 guys later, we read a guy named Roger Eschbacher who looks like that guy's little brother. He's just balding and it looks like he was beat up by the guy. Like, I don't know why, but we weren't even reading for the part. And I said to them, the garden giant brothers were here today. Number three and number eight, cast them, lock them in. These two guys only have to walk into our store with green jackets on and terror will fill the room. And they turned out to be hilarious together. I don't know. It was like kismet, but it's about watching for those moments because actors do bring a very unique thing way beyond the script to the party. Absolutely. I, I love a silent character. Nothing makes me happier than a silent character. Somebody that, like you said, just they're going to walk in, they're going to say one word and we're going to all get a very clear picture is going to snap into place. We're going to know exactly what is happening. We're going to know exactly when to laugh and why to laugh. It's all going to come together. And it's because these two look like the moron twins. And, and I love that. It's, it's genius. But when you start to get characters that kind of live and breathe, yeah. then as a writer, it also just gives you great places for conflict and development. And the what if for the audience in situation comedy situation is why they come back every week. Right. These are people right. they love to get into kind of a fix. Right. And that's what, you know, when you are writing, when you're writing characters, in my storytelling, there are other characters and sort of what the redemption of those characters is throughout the thing. In my new hour, I took my mom with me to Europe. And so a lot of my new hour is about traveling with my mother, who's now a 70-year-old woman. She has MS. We're in Europe. She's got a weird foot. She's got a hinky arm. She can't take heat. And we're in Italy in August. And it's like traveling alongside a giant drunk toddler who has an Amex. Like she's just <laughs> running around and shopping and charging things. And I can't keep up with her. And I'm telling her to slow down. And there's no talking to her. So even like someone in my act, there has to be a beginning and a middle and an end for her in the storytelling. And so, so to sort of see those arches and things work their way out either within the story or within the whole sort of arc of the show is very satisfying. I think it's satisfying for me as a storyteller, but I think even the audience gets to go, oh, we know something about these people. They could see a whole thing sort of spinning from it because ultimately that's what I want. I want somebody to hear this stuff and go, we should put this bitch in a sitcom. This needs to happen, you know? And you also are great at bringing the voices of those characters in. Because you're a storyteller, you understand about it not being a one-person show by bringing in that voice of your mother or some other character along the way. You're just painting a fuller picture. I know that I've been at some venues where they say, well, why should we pay for one person to be on stage? Why should we pay as much as we pay for six people to do a play or a dance troupe or something? I said, well, you're not looking at this properly. Yeah. You're looking at somebody who's entertaining your audience for 90 minutes in the same place and you don't have to roll a big truck of Broadway scenery in. We're painting the scenery with the words and they're laughing and they're leaving and they're coming back. I think the pie is plenty big enough for all of us. So I'm hoping that Jen Cobra is setting the stage for me in next season's slot for that spot because they enjoyed it so much. I saw you at a fundraiser in LA. I was taken by a friend. I think that's the first time 
I saw you do like a headline set. I sat there in a, a place with a bunch of couches. I was just howling at how well you told the story, how well you engaged the audience. And I was like, why has it taken me so long to discover this? Because there are great storytellers out there that I don't interact with. And there are great comedians I've never heard of. It's easier now with Instagram and other things for somebody to share a link. Right. But I just, the joy to me of watching an original storyteller get into the zone. And it's like watching somebody catch a wave into a pipeline and catch the curl and come out the other side. You're like, that's amazing because that's what we're doing with every set is we're kind of dealing with where do we get into the wave? Where does the crest, where do we get out? If the wave goes high, do we go even higher? That's the super yeah. fun part of when you get to the art that you're in and you go, oh, it's freestyle night. Yeah. Cause there's times you tighten it up and you go, I'm just going to stay upright. I'm just going to get out of the ring and collect my check and get out of here. Absolutely. Yes. And I tell that to people, it's like any job. You, sometimes you don't want to be at work. <laughs> sometimes you're going to head on others in other stuff or you're tired or you had a crazy day of travel or stuff's going on at home. And here you are at the chuckle hut in Iowa city and your head's just somewhere else. And it's, it's difficult, but every job is difficult. And, and this is the, like I said, the only skill that I have. So I'm just, yeah, but because much. it's the only skill you have, I'd like you to explore telling somebody who has a unique skill, you become reliant on your own ability to communicate your brand, your personality, who you are, how to step forward from that. It's not the question of what do you tell a young person that wants to get into this business? It's more, where do you draw the strength to focus on being you in this sea of people who are trying to be discovered and want to be what they're looking for. Because that's the difference. The more you become Jen Kober, the stronger your brand gets. Yes. And that's what I'm doing when I'm looking at an audition. They've called in. They've said they want this. Okay. So let's assume everyone is going to be that. What can I be that is still that, right? I'm already that. But what can I bring to this that they're not going to see from these other people? What choice can I make that is different, a visual choice. I did an audition for a movie where the line was, the richest coffee in the world is picked by the poorest people. And the person rips their shirt off, <laughs> exposing their tits. And I thought, well, that just seems kind of unmotivated. And it's not like I've got the greatest tits. They're a little droopy. It's a lot of blank space. So what I did was I said, the richest coffee in the world is picked by the poorest people. And when I ripped my shirt open, I had written drink tea on my tits. And I booked the part. <laughs> I booked the part because they were like, we died. We could not believe you wrote on your, in permanent marker, I had drink tea on my tits for like three weeks. But it was a choice. And it was because what the line that was written there didn't make sense to me. Why? Would yeah. It needed to be a political message. I needed to have something revealed. And so that's what I chose to do. I thought it was going to say, try our creamer. <laughs> Another great choice. You see, <laughs> making everything your own. It's the same thing with voiceovers. I do a lot of voiceover auditions and they're going to hear everybody read it correctly. They're going to hear everybody hit the right words and say the right phrasing and whatever. What can I do with my voice as a character? What, what sort of 
tick can I give them? What sort of funny lisp can I give them? What sort of accent? Because all I have is, is my voice. That's the only, only thing I'm using is what, what, how can I slow it down or speed it up or do some combination of both? Yeah, the greatest example of that is that weird thing that Catherine O'Hara did in Schitt's Creek with that character. The cadence she was using and the weird voice thing. You could... <laughs> Never get away with that in anything except this, <laughs> except that she was so committed to it and did it so well. And, and it was so consistent that it was consistent in its inconsistency. And that's what was brilliant about it. She made this crazy fucking choice and she just stuck with it. So yeah. I think that's true in life. I think that's true in storytelling. I think that's true in comedy. That if you can just make a big choice, just swing for the fence. It's a home run derby. Nobody cares if you get to second. That you're not helping anybody by getting to second. There's plenty of baseline hitters. You got to be Babe Ruth. You got to be hitting it out of the park. So swing for the fences, make those big choices, and either you're going to get it or you're not. That's all up in the air anyway. You have nothing to lose by swinging for the fence because Time Daly could be on the other side of the fucking fence. Right. And by the way, she'll catch that fly ball and yes, you'll be she out. She will. Yes, she will. With her teeth. She's time fucking daily. She's awesome. You don't ever know. I may not even have a fucking chance to begin with, but I want them to see me and be like, look, she's not old enough. She's too fat. She's whatever for this. But that was fucking funny. That was memorable. And the next time I do have some kind of crazy outlandish character or something I think she'd be right for, I'm calling that bitch in and she's going to get a crack at it because she made a big choice. And I think they appreciate that. You have to remember what they're doing too. They're just looking at tape after tape after tape. And when they say sing a song, I'm not singing like a cute little, I am fucking belting out like a Whitney Hughes, something I have no business singing because A, I can. And B, you're going to be like, oh shit. Wow, she really just sat, swung for the fences. Yeah, go be you. And that's what the camera will pick up. It'll pick up something about you that will give you that edge. And I think it also helps me to think that whoever is watching me wants me to do well. Instead of thinking that they're judging me or thinking that they're not going to like what I'm going to do, I think about times when I've auditioned people or I've been on the other side of it. You want that person to get up there and wow you. That's what you want. And so so just give them that. Just just wow them with what you have and give them the best that you can and, and make them remember you because they want you to do well. And if you come at it from that point, I think you're you're much less likely to be in your head about like, what are they thinking? Or did I do this right? No, you're right. You've just nailed it. Because the point is when you're on the other side of this, you want everybody who walks in the room to get it so that you can stop the process. You want right. to go, we found them. There they are. And if you see one and you go, wow, that person's great. And then two later you go, wait a minute, this is even greater. You want as many great people to audition because in the end you go, you know what? That person's so great. I'm going to change who I'm going to cast as a sister. I'm going to cast that person as a girlfriend and that as a sister. And we're done. We get to go home now. That's what they want. They want their problem solved and they want it with somebody who's going to be easy to work with. And that brings this, this project together because we're all storytellers within the story. Each character, each moment, each emotion is why the editor has choices that make the impact of the final show. And, Anybody that's insecure or doesn't know or not willing to bring everything they have to the story, they're not that useful on the team. 
I want to be sure that everybody knows how to find you so that they can hear your voice. But also I want to let them know you have an upcoming special called Southern Fried Funny. It's yet to be determined where that will be, but the title will be Southern Fried Funny, Jen Cober. And you can see Jen and her fabulous background in this at jencober.com or on Instagram at jencober. So thank you for investing the time today and sharing your story and your voice. You're just the greatest. Oh, you're so sweet. I had a lovely time talking with you. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. You got the part. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. With additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Stare